Hi, welcome to Classics Unlocked, brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. These sounds herald the start of one of the most famous bodies of music in the Western tradition, the symphonies of Ludwig van Beethoven. The problem with famous music is, when we dig a little deeper, we often find that it's not as well known as we think it is. Certainly Beethoven's fifth and ninth symphonies contain some of the most famous tunes in the world, tunes that almost everyone in the Western world will have heard or recognised. But how many people can hum a tune from the second, fourth or eighth symphonies? In this program, I want to take you on a whirlwind tour of these nine unique pieces, and I hope provide some signposts for your future exploration. The recordings I'll use feature the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra under Herbert von Karajan in their first Beethoven symphony cycle together, which was released in 1963. Beethoven took a quarter of a century to write his nine symphonies. The first dates from 1799, and the ninth was completed in 1824. It's helpful also to remember that Beethoven sketched ideas for other symphonies, most notably a tenth, which never got off the ground. The nine that we have don't comprise a finished body of work, although it's easy to view them that way in hindsight. They're just the nine he completed, and as such they chart a fascinating course through the core of his creative life. After several attempts in the 1790s to write a symphony, Beethoven's first completed and published work in this form was probably written in 1799 when he was 28. It was premiered in Vienna in April 1800. The symphonic tradition at the time was dominated by Mozart and Haydn, but every composer aiming for recognition would attempt to write symphonies. Symphonies are like novels in literature. They were the main, large-scale, instrumental form in which composers expressed their ideas, and getting a symphony performed was a key step to greater public fame. For the young Beethoven, writing a symphony in Vienna less than a decade after the death of Mozart, and while Haydn was still alive, must have been daunting. Yet it's clear that he wanted to set his first symphony apart from the Mozart-Haydn tradition. The classical symphony would always start with a solid establishment of the home key, not Beethoven. Beethoven's first symphony starts, as was often done, with a slow introduction. We heard it at the start of the program. What's unusual is that Beethoven in the first eight chords sounds six different harmonies, none of which is C major, the symphony's tonic key. This music sounds tame to us. In 1800, it would have raised eyebrows and made people listen. Even though the first symphony is in the normal classic structure of four movements, each movement is powerfully energised, almost aggressively so. This man was demanding to be heard.
After a second movement, which begins like a fugue and which later on plays around with pulse, the third movement is bizarre, to say the least. In line with tradition, Beethoven called it a minuet, but marked it to be played at such a fast speed so as to make any similarity with a minuet completely accidental. This is a scherzo in all but name. A scherzo, literally joke, is a fleet-footed, sped-up version of the minuet which had started to replace minuets in major works. Haydn had used the term, but Beethoven made it mainstream. The last movement of Beethoven's first begins with a slow introduction, something far less common in a finale. Like the first movement, the main fast section is powerful and driven, and the symphony ends with maximum energy. Beethoven's second symphony was composed in 1802, right at the same time as he was at his lowest ebb regarding the crisis over his hearing. It was completed in Heiligenstadt, outside Vienna, where the so-called Heiligenstadt Testament was written. This was a document Beethoven addressed to his brothers and to the wider world. In it, he poured out his anguish over the realisation that his deafness could not be cured. It comes close to sounding suicidal. Yet the symphony he wrote at the same time seems joyous, dynamic, and full of life. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. To me, the Second Symphony sounds therapeutically defiant. It may appear happy on the surface, but my overwhelming impression of it is of its power. It's a work which is almost defiantly happy, happy through gritted teeth. The result is a work which must have knocked the socks off its first audiences when it was premiered in 1803. Like the first symphony, the second opens with a slow introduction. 
but here there is no doubt about the home key. After a few harmonic excursions, the introduction plummets into the main section of the first movement. It's hard to find words to describe the sheer audacity of this music. The second symphony's slow movement is luscious and beautiful. The main melody is presented in classically balanced phrases, but there's something undeniably Beethoven about the way it yearns and falls, and the use of the winds in the repetitions, especially the clarinet and bassoon, is extremely satisfying. This is not to say that the slow movement doesn't contain surprises. It certainly does. But the third movement, now actually called a scherzo, takes the surprises a step further with its nervous, twitchy main section and its harmonic wrenches in the trio. The finale takes all of the above to a whole new level. The little snap figure at the start becomes an obsessive tick throughout the movement. By the end of the movement, the alleged happiness of the music has metamorphosed into energy that is truly terrifying. The fact that it's in the major key doesn't in any way lessen its power. It always feels so close to falling off the rails, one of the reasons orchestras and conductors find this music very challenging to bring off.
Immediately after finishing the second symphony, Beethoven started sketching a third. This was completed in October of the following year. The quantum leap from second symphony to third happened almost overnight, and it's one of the reasons I hear in the second symphony not just a happy Beethoven, but a Beethoven powder keg ready to explode. It goes off in the third. The third symphony is the famous Eroica, or Heroic, symphony, originally dedicated to Napoleon and written to celebrate Beethoven's idealistic view of the French military leader as a liberator and unifier of humanity. Its original title was to have been Bonaparte. But when he received the news of Napoleon's coronation as Emperor of France, the shattered composer realised Napoleon was no better than any other tyrant. He removed the dedication and the title, instead calling the work Sinfonia Eroica, Heroic Symphony. In the published score, he added the generalised subtitle, Composed to Celebrate the Memory of a Great Man. The Eroica is easily the biggest symphony ever conceived to that time. At around 50 minutes, it's twice the length of the first symphony and almost twice the length of the second. The orchestra Beethoven uses, though, is identical to the standard classical orchestra used in the first two symphonies in every respect but one. All three symphonies use pairs of flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons and trumpets in addition to timpani and strings. But where the first two symphonies use the standard two horns, the Eroica uses three. Beethoven's Third Symphony had its first performance in 1804, a private run-through at the Palace of Prince Lobkowitz in Vienna. The first public performance took place in 1805. It is simply incredible that only three years separate Beethoven's First and Third Symphonies. They're worlds apart. The Scherzo is famous not only for its very long, soft passage at the start, before the music explodes, but also for the heroic trio of horns in the central section.
The finale of the Eroica is a massive set of variations on a theme Beethoven used several times in this earlier part of his career. And as a whole, the Eroica Symphony is one of the great landmarks in the history of Western music. Its fame tends to overshadow its successor, the Fourth, which was composed in 1806. Like the Eroica, the Fourth, too, had a private premiere at the Lobkowitz Palace in March 1807, with the public premiere taking place later the same year. Most orchestral players I've talked to about the Fourth regard it as the most technically difficult of Beethoven's symphonies to play. It's about the same length as the Second Symphony, but the fourth pushes the players and their instruments to the edge. Like the first two symphonies, there's a slow introduction, but this is swept away by a main section of the first movement which is incredibly dynamic and powerful. The energy of the first three symphonies continues and, if anything, is expanded upon here. Beethoven's fourth has at its centre two remarkable movements. A slow movement of breathtaking beauty and a roller coaster of a scherzo of bizarre twists and turns. The finale, though, is where much of the terror lies for the players. It's notoriously difficult to get together.
Beethoven's next symphony is perhaps one of the most famous pieces in all Western music. Beethoven's surviving sketchbooks reveal that the Fifth Symphony was hammered out over two or three years. Most of the work on it took place in late 1806 and early 1807, and completed in the first half of 1808. It had its premiere in the December of 1808. What makes the Fifth Symphony remarkable is a point perhaps missed by those who just love its sweeping power, which is of course a great reason to love it. The first movement is possibly the greatest example of Beethoven setting himself the challenge of writing an entire movement within established structures using the slightest, shortest, most seemingly useless raw material. In the Fifth Symphony, the famous opening four notes are the raw material used to create the entire first movement, and many ideas in other movements as well. That idea, three short notes and a longer one, recurs in the third movement after the beautiful slow movement. The finale is linked to the scherzo too, another innovation, and grows out of its inconclusive ending. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Up to the end of the third movement, Beethoven has still been using the standard classical orchestra. But in the finale, he adds five more instruments. A piccolo, a contrabassoon, and three trombones. The Fifth Symphony charts a journey not uncommon in many large-scale works, going from darkness in the first movement to light at the end. The blaze of light at the end of Beethoven's Fifth is unmissable.
Beethoven's sketchbooks show that he actually started the Sixth Symphony before the Fifth, but the Fifth was completed and published first. The major work on the Sixth was carried out in 1808, and it was premiered in December of that year in the same concert which saw the premiere of the Fifth Symphony. With the Sixth Symphony, we have a complete change in Beethoven's feel for the symphonic form. The exhausting rush of energy evident in the first five is largely absent here. Beethoven took a completely different path with the Sixth, writing a programmatic symphony. That is, a symphony in which the music is given meanings, describing emotions or events, rather than being absolute music. The music is intended to evoke emotional states connected with the countryside, which Beethoven loved, and each movement has a title to that effect. The first movement describes joyful feelings on arriving in the countryside, the second a scene by the brook, and the third a peasant dance. After this, Beethoven innovates structurally. The third movement runs without a break into a fourth, a violent storm interlude, which in turn runs into a fifth, a hymn of thanksgiving by shepherds after the storm. The completed work Beethoven called Sinfonia Pastorale, Pastoral Symphony. Interestingly, he wasn't the first composer to write a five-movement symphony describing the countryside. The German composer Justin Heinrich Knecht, a contemporary of Mozart who was still alive when Beethoven wrote the Sixth Symphony, wrote his own pastoral symphony in the 1780s. And apart from being in five movements, it contains a storm sequence and ends with a hymn of thanksgiving. But there the similarities end. Beethoven's music is in no way indebted to Knecht, and we can only guess if Beethoven knew of it. The last movement, the hymn after the storm, is one of the most radiantly beautiful things Beethoven ever wrote. Beethoven composed his first six symphonies within a period of nine years. Of course, he wrote a lot else besides, but with the sixth, we come to the end of Beethoven's first burst of symphonic writing. 
The next two symphonies, the seventh and the eighth, were written almost simultaneously. The seventh was completed in 1812, four years after the sixth, but not performed until the end of 1813. Whereas the Fifth Symphony dispensed almost entirely with melody to create a densely worked masterpiece based almost entirely on harmony, here in the Seventh, Beethoven focuses on rhythm. No other symphony of his is so rhythmically driven, but the Seventh also has at its core a fundamental harmonic plan. The music constantly swings three steps either side of the home key. And the way Beethoven uses harmony in this work to capture the listener in his grip is often forgotten. People nearly always focus on the rhythmic power of the work, which is easier to grasp, but it's far from the whole story. The ending of the Seventh Symphony is one of the most exciting passages I know. Beethoven's Eighth Symphony is a shorter work which, superficially at least, returns us to the world of the first two symphonies. But it displays a side of Beethoven we see in none of the other symphonies. It was completed in 1812, not long after the seventh, and premiered in February 1814. Many people dismiss the Eighth as an aberration, a lapse in Beethoven's judgment, and thereby miss its point entirely. The Eighth is miraculous, Beethoven's shortest symphony, but short because its ideas are compressed, tightly controlled, and full of incredible energy, like a spring threatening to burst forth. 
The first piece in the mainstream repertoire to use timpani tuned in octaves, the eighth takes up the harmonic movement in thirds, which Beethoven used in the seventh symphony, and if anything is more sophisticated in its use here. The second and third movements embarrass many people. They're unashamedly funny. And some people just can't deal with humour in a symphony, especially one by Beethoven. The second movement parodies the metronome, while the third is a minuet. It may be the only real minuet in any Beethoven symphony, but it's a very lumpy off-balance minuet in which some players seem to come in on the wrong beat now and then. The finale is terrifyingly tricky to bring off in performance. At Beethoven's indicated tempo, it verges on the impossible to play, and the rude interruptions of D-flat into the texture, again a third away from the home key, are the best musical descriptions of someone poking their tongue out that I've ever heard. Thank you. 
After completing the Eighth Symphony in 1812, Beethoven didn't return to the symphony as a form for more than a decade. A commission from London led to the creation of what we now know as the Ninth Symphony, which was composed in 1823 and 1824, with the premiere taking place in Vienna in May 1824. The Ninth is of course famous for its Ode to Joy finale, the first time voices had ever been added to a symphony. But the massive variations on the simple tune Beethoven conceived for Schiller's Ode overshadows the other three movements. The first movement, a massively powerful, dark sonata form movement, and the demonic scherzo which follows it, are both in the home key of D minor. This is followed by the slow movement, a sublime set of variations in B-flat, before all hell breaks loose to usher in the finale. Out of this chaos, Beethoven struggles to find a means of expressing the light which has been reached after the darkness of the first two movements, and finally allows human voices, a choir and four soloists, to enter and give full expression to his emotional destination. This is all based on a simple yet moving tune which has become known the world over.
Ninth Symphony is a total journey in itself, all four movements. Taking the finale as the good bit completely misses the point. But don't get me wrong, the ending is pretty amazing. And we'll conclude this program with the end of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The recordings used in this program come from the first cycle of Beethoven's symphonies which the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra and Herbert von Karajan recorded together, released in 1963. Karajan had already recorded the Beethoven symphonies with the Philharmonia Orchestra in the early 1950s and would record them again with the Berlin Philharmonic in the 70s and yet again in the 80s. Like the conductor himself, who died in 1989, Every cycle has its fans and its detractors. I'm not going anywhere near that minefield. My thanks to Tom Ford for the technical production of Classics Unlocked and my name's Graham Abbott. Catch you next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.